Preface of the Life and Works of Joseph Wright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Works of Joseph Wright, A.R.A., commonly called Wright of Derby, by William Bemrose, with a preface by Cosmo Monkhouse. Preface The name of Joseph Wright of Derby, once of high repute among English artists, has, during the last half-century and more, sunk altogether undeservedly into a state of semi-oblivion. The exhibition at Derby in 1883 did indeed something to restore its fame, and it is to be hoped that the present work may do yet more. Both book and exhibition owe their existence mainly to the exertions of Mr. Bemrose, who in this matter may be said to have been moved by a triple love, the love of art, the love of family, and the love of locality. By his kindness I am allowed here to aid in doing justice to an artist of whom not only Derby, but England should be proud. Even if such a feat were possible, I should have no wish to compare accurately the merits of Wright with those of his forerunners and contemporaries. It will, however, be generally acknowledged that between such names as Hogarth, Reynolds, Gainsborough and Wilson, and such as West, Northcote, Barry and Hamilton, there is a gap sensibly to be felt. In this gap, but nearer to the greater than to the lesser men, a place has of late years been found for Romney. It is but a modest claim for right that the same distinction should be accorded to him. As a painter, his method, in relation to that of Reynolds and Gainsborough, may be said to have been old-fashioned. His pure, precise touches, his level surface and clear enameled colours, have not, indeed, the variety of texture or the inspired freedom of a Franz Hals. His practice was nearer to that of van der Helst, and a host of other illustrious artists to whom clear, clean work was dear. Through Kneller and Hogarth and Hudson it came to him from Holland, and if he did not reform it, he mastered it and left his mark upon it. As a colorist he was scarcely an innovator, but he was still less of a copyist. In this and most other respects a naturalist, he did not allow a preference for certain harmonies to dominate his work, but, though his colour missed the charm of inspiration, it never failed in harmony. He had the colour sense and a command of the whole scale. In his candlelight pieces, the prevailing hues were determined by his subjects, but the way in which he united the blazing reds and yellows of the central glare to the rich browns of his transparent shadows warmed and cooled the shadows with gleams of red coat and glimmers of blue sash and white dress, and from the ruddy glow of the chamber to the cool night outside, let the eye, untired, showed rare taste as well as skill. If we take his portraits by ordinary light, we find the same fine power. The group of Mr. Newton's children, with its blue boy, its olive-green boy, and its girl in white and gold, set off with rich green foliage and clusters of ripe cherries, is a masterpiece of colour. 
In these daylight portraits, all the favorite colors of the dress of the period are introduced and reconciled. The hues and textures of the buff waistcoat, the nankin breeches, the puce slip, the cinnamon coat, and the pink shoes are imitated with the same sure skill, the same artistic impartiality. Only in regard to one color do we find a decided preference, and this is neither the blue of Gainsborough nor the red of Reynolds, but what may be called the green of right. Probably no other artist has treated this color with such variety. It tinges those bladders of which he was so fond. We find it lightly in the stone-colored coat of Mr. Cheslin, and deeply in the arm of his chair. In pale cucumber the artist robed his pitiful Maria, and from that fine picture of himself in the National Portrait Gallery we learn that it was green that he elected to wear in his youth when he wished to look particularly spruce. Of his effects of artificial light, there is the less need to speak, since what reputation he now preserves is founded upon them. The engravings after Wright by Earlham J. R. Smith, Bar Green, Pether, and others are still sought after, and the air pump is in the National Gallery for all who wish to see. It may, however, be doubted whether due recognition has as yet been given to the largeness of design and the dignified simplicity of pose and gesture which lend an almost classic style to such pictures as the Ori, the Air Pump, and the Gladiator. The exhibition of 1883, while it confirmed the reputation of such pictures, showed also that his rank as a portrait painter was much higher than was supposed. In this branch of art we find him submitting himself to his subject and seeking rather to express than to adorn it. He brings you, as few artists do, into the presence of his sitters, as if alone and at ease, unconscious of observation, they, whether men, women or children, are all engaged with their own thoughts and employments, just as they might have been seen any day in library or garden. Many men of celebrity, not only local, he painted, Arkwright and Whitehurst, Darwin and Strutt, but the charm of his portraits does not depend on the fame of the sitter, but on the power of the artist to seize a distinct individuality and to make each likeness forever interesting as an authentic image of a fellow-man. Unsophisticated by fashion or affectation, Wright's portraits are history in its simplest and truest form. Of the pure charm of his children, some of the illustrations to this volume, especially Mr. Seymour Hayden's painter-like etching of the twins, will speak. Sir Joshua painted children with more spirit and with a livelier eye for fleeting charms of expression, but no artist has painted them more freshly and truly than Wright. Another admirably suggestive etching by Mr. Hayden shows us the elegance of mien and grace of sentiment which he could infuse into his more poetical designs. His versatility was remarkable, but his culture, partly perhaps on account of his secluded life, partly from his ill health, left many of his faculties undeveloped 
and his imagination was crossed by a vein of ingenuity which made him delight rather in resolving problems than in indulging fancy. Nevertheless, the minstrel and the Maria are as good reflections as exist of that somewhat thin but elegant strain of poetic sentiment which was in vogue in his day. He has in these pictures preserved its gentleness and grace without its falseness. A deeper note of pathos, and pathos unstrained, is touched in the once famous dead soldier. In his Death and the Woodman we find extreme terror depicted with all the force of the most modern realist. And if he did not, who did, prove himself equal to the interpretation of Shakespeare, there is in Boydell's gallery no finer head than that of his Prospero. It will seem strange to many that Wright should, in his day, have ranked even higher as a landscape painter than as a painter of men, but his fireworks and conflagration effects were a novelty and were executed with a skill which must have then seemed astonishing. Now, perhaps, even if they were done with the superior genius of a Turner, we should not care over much for them. His more ordinary scenes from nature were sometimes almost as good as Wilson's, but generally wanted the warmth and the air of that fine artist, and his composition was apt to be too palpably ingenious. Nevertheless, all abatement made, he was an original and able landscape painter, and when we add this to his other claims, and remember how thoroughly sincere his art was, how distinct his personality, it seems hard that the latest history of English art should not even mention his name. True, it was written by a foreigner, and it is probable that if Monsieur Chesnot had visited Derby two years ago, he would have awarded Wright an honourable place among those artists whom he calls the old masters of England. Cosmo Monkhouse End of Preface